On the street in Little Haiti, colorful murals honor revolutionaries Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the fathers of the first Black Republic. The delicious smell of eggplant stew floats out of local kitchens. Each family has their own legume recipe for dinner. The latest compas song blares out of car stereos, keeping spirits high as people go about their days. The Miami neighborhood of Little Haiti might seem like entirely its own world, but the neighborhood has deep roots in the Afro-Caribbean region, dating back to much earlier migration patterns as well as today's climate crises. And as it is said in Haiti, sac vide pas compé, an empty sack cannot stand. It's the melding of many communities over time that has built Little Haiti and Miami into the artistic hub it is today. Welcome to Tomorrow is the Problem, an ICA Miami Art and Research Center podcast. I'm your host, Donna Honarpiche. This season, we're foregrounding Haiti's influence on Miami, the city that ICA calls home. We'll explore and engage with Haitian communities in close proximity to the museum, taking a walk through the little Haiti neighborhood to learn more about the role of Afro-Caribbean diasporas in building Miami's unique artistic and cultural hub. ICA Miami presents the art of Haitian artists, including Hervé Telemach, Mirland Constant, and Tom El Sayet, among others. As we host Haitian artists within the walls of the ICA and explore our own role as curators and neighbors to these communities, we look outward to the political, cultural, and aesthetic worlds that inform artistic practices and inward to our own identities and questions. In a city like Miami, I mean, I think the Haitians have managed to to gain a recognition here in this part, very particular city that they haven't had nowhere else. That's Edouard Duval-Carrier, a Haitian-born artist living in Miami. We'll hear more from him later in this episode. In season one of our podcast, in our episode on transoceanic relations, we spoke with Edwidge Dantecat, a Haitian-American writer who lives here in Miami. She reminded us that in a city like ours, even calling Miami home is a complicated question. Well, I think living in Miami, one is particularly aware of movement and migration because you can wake up here on any particular day and hear that a boat has landed on the shores and that boat might be coming from Haiti, from Cuba, from the Bahamas. This is a very, I think, a transient city and a lot of people flow through here, but also people remake their homes here in the sense that they feel as American as anybody else. But then when they come up against sort of these rituals, right, these mechanisms of the state, they realize that you don't get to define home like we do. You might feel at home, but you're always being told in many ways, sometimes with legislation, sometimes with stigmatization, that you need to go back somewhere. 
Despite challenges and perpetual immigration tension, people have chosen to put down roots in Miami, roots that go deep and expand out in new ways year by year in the community of Little Haiti. Well before Little Haiti's gingerbread houses were painted in their distinctive pastels, Bahamian immigrants erected conch-style houses in the same space. In fact, the neighborhood of Lemon City, which we now know as Little Haiti, predated Miami altogether. Named for the area's sweet citrus trees, Lemon City had a thriving Black population before Miami was even incorporated. Black migrants and immigrants had been coming to Miami from at least the late 19th century in pursuit of work that was attached to the transportation industries, agricultural industries, as well as tourist industries. And so Miami had always been a place sort of situated in the hemispheric south that was pulling migrants from the regional Caribbean and Latin America, as well as from other points in the U.S. South to um, pursue these particular kinds of work opportunities. This is Donette Francis, Associate Professor of English and Co-Director of the Center for Global Black Studies at the University of Miami. So to tell the story of present-day Little Haiti, Lemon City, Little River is to think about the long-term migration patterns, right? If Little Haiti was the place in which the new migrants came, then in addition to moving further north into Broward County and other points further north in Miami, another area in which migrants settled for home ownership would have been Little River and Lemon City. When we think of Little Haiti today, we think of a rich space and site of Haitian culture. The cultural overlay of a place like Little Haiti, with its past and present diasporic communities, becomes fertile ground for new ways of thinking, particularly in the arts. Frances is interested in what she calls Creole Miami, a mixed city that draws on its many intersecting histories as a long-standing hub for migration. In Miami, I want to think about what happens when Latin America, the Caribbean, and a history of U.S. racial formation comes together here in Miami, which is to say we're bringing all of our histories and baggage from Latin America and the Caribbean, and it's meeting up with what we understand of as the U.S. South, as well as the broader American racial formation. And in this way, what I think emerges in Miami that's quite unique to other American cities is this phrase that I'm playing with that's called um, hemispheric Creole whiteness, which is to say, if we understand the 1980s as a moment when there is a significant cultural shift, demographic shift as well in Miami. And so the question is, in the midst of the struggles around civil rights in the U.S., what does it mean to have this large influx of migrants from Latin America and the Caribbean? And how have they transformed the city? The 1980s marked a major turning point in Miami. Thousands of people from Cuba and Haiti had escaped their homeland, seeking political and economic asylum in Miami. 
Haitian asylum seekers have long faced a history of anti-Black mistreatment by U.S. authorities. This is especially striking in Florida when compared to the softer treatment of mainly white Cubans. Particularly in the 80s and 90s, Haitian migrants were often more detained while Cubans were set free, a glaring difference in U.S. migration policy that often created an uneasy dynamic between the many immigrant groups that call Miami home. As a result, negative stereotypes and broad anti-Haitian sentiments across South Florida often cause deep ethnic divisions between native Black Americans and newly arrived Haitians. But with time, the relationships eventually improved. And now, Haitian-American artists who found ways to assimilate while preserving their cultural roots shape their own narratives through art. In fact, Francis argues that Miami's vibrant art scene owes its success to the mixing effect brought on in neighborhoods like Little Haiti, where a strong diasporic community rushes up against other influences. One of the things I find really profound about the art scene in contemporary Black Miami is that sense of a shared Black hemispheric imaginary in spite of their difference. There is this sense that they're holding space for all of these Black stories to be told, for all of these Black histories to be visualized, right? So I think about, for example, an artist like Charles Humes Jr. Although he's born in Liberty City, he's very interested in telling the story of Miami's Black diaspora. And for him, that certainly includes Haiti. And so this 1970s piece that's called Haitian Dissections allows us to think about a Haitian presence in Miami well before what we typically understand as the sort of post-1980s migration patterns. And so I find that interesting. But also that he would have been a teacher of someone like Morel Doucet, who is a contemporary Haitian Miamian artist. So those two artists, for example, come to mind in terms of a generational conversation that we might think of between artists and the teachers who made them We see that in Miami, there's this long history of Black, trained Black visual artists. And it is no accident, I would argue, that in Miami, you probably have the most robust, the most visible number of Haitian artists, for example, working anywhere today. And many of them came out of Miami-Dade public school systems, right? And that shows a particular kind of investment in the arts that I think, for me, seems pretty unique to Miami. Francis's Miami is a melding of worlds and a way for artists of different backgrounds, particularly in the multi-ethnic Black arts community, to really engage with each other. I think Black Miami stories are completely rich stories. I think they're stories that have been overshadowed by the Great North or places in the South that we're more used to talking about, sort of Kingston and Port of Spain or maybe even Port-au-Prince. But Miami brings all of them together, but it brings them together in ways that are not 
simply celebratory, but it forces us to think about the tensions that exist in Black diasporic spaces and the ways in which we come together, for sure, but the ways in which we have to work really hard and intentional to create space for ourselves, even as we're working against other institutional structures that might occlude us, right? So it's not simply about making space for the one, but really trying to make space for the many. And so I feel like that's been, in many ways, the gift of of Miami for me, because the challenges for me are there, creating institutional spaces that honors and makes space for Black Miami stories, to me is, I don't know, it's like for me the most important work that I can do today. And so that's allowed me to see Blackness in its most expansive ways. What does this expansive perspective mean on an individual level? For some Haitian artists working in Miami, the city's reputation as a crossroads allows for a more expansive exploration of Haitian and Caribbean themes. The, the presence of Haitians in Miami is part of the folklore of the city itself, which is quite amazing. And uh, the reception of it is not, I mean, secluded to one particular. It, it's, it extends itself in a, in a very organic way across the city, and people are aware of it. This is Edouard Duval Carrier, a Haitian-born artist living in Miami. His family fled Haiti when he was nine, seeking an alternative to the regime of François Papadoc Duvalier. Duval Carrier credits this migration with opening his eyes to a broader Caribbean perspective, which would later make its way into his art practice. I mean, the situation was very fraught with problems and there were people disappearing. So my father and mother decided to move close by to Puerto Rico which was quite unusual because most people went to New York. But the fact that we went to Puerto Rico, um, I mean, really opened my eyes to the region. I mean, it made me more uh, conscious of the region as a whole than just Haiti. Like many Haitians who left in that era, Duval Carrier chose not to return home after the downfall of the Duvaliers. Instead, he embraced the global opportunities afforded to him as a diasporic artist, living in France for many years before settling in Miami. Despite many years away from Haiti, he returns to it over and over in his artistic practice. He's deeply engaged with Haiti as a political concept and as a cultural wellspring of vivid imagery with deep meaning. And it's so different from anywhere else. I mean, the first black republic on the, on the planet. And a nation that's forming a new vision of itself in that world, you know? So, I mean, it became you know, like very clear that there was an effort, you know, like two centuries ago, you know, like by the society, the Haitian, the Haitians to portray themselves in a particular way. And they didn't revert back to their African roots, for example. They always wanted to, you know, like to make sure that people understood that they, that they had an agenda, which was, you know, like that of a sovereign republic. I mean, it's very touching, and but very particular visually, you know, and that's what I've really liked to make people realize. 
An important part of the new Haitian aesthetic was portraiture, which acknowledged the individuality of the revolutionaries and celebrated newly free citizens. Duval Carrier blends this long-standing portraiture tradition with an even older Haitian practice, voodoo. His fascination with both artistic histories has led him to experiment with unique artistic forms. People are thinking everybody's Haiti is voodoo, you know what I mean? You really have to get into it to understand it and to see the complexity of it. Haiti is a Pan-African country, and the people don't understand that as well. They will not grasp the complexity of that particular religion, of the people of Haiti as well. So at first, I wanted to make sure people understood, I mean, due to slavery and, of course, of, of stylistic uh, uh, imperatives. I mean, they use symbols, I mean, very straightforward symbols on floors. I mean, that could be erased because they, wouldn't be, they didn't want to be caught by officials because it was banned, etc., etc. So I looked at these symbols and I said, maybe I should start trying to give them, you know, like some sort of a face. For more than five to ten years, I was completely involved with that to create the visuals of voodoo. Duval Carrier etches glass with images pulled from Haitian religious practices, such as the bull spirit, Loa Bossu. In his Tête Gravé series or engraved heads, individual faces stand alone on a bright blue background. Within the outline of the heads, floral patterns sprout and morph into geometric repetitions. His feathery etching style calls to mind the carefully embroidered flags used in voodoo. The work is a carefully composed homage to many artistic practices that came before him, early Haitian portraiture, sacred art, and black figuration in the diaspora. And um, after a while, you know, like I, I think I did my work, my share. And I, when I found my posters of exhibits in, in the States, in temples, in voodoo temples in Haiti, I said, okay, I've done the job, you know, so I hope they get it. <laughs> Duval Carrier sees himself as a kind of translator of Haitian imagery in the modern diasporic era. By working with Haitian symbols and new mediums, he hopes to better understand his own heritage and to share these discoveries with the diasporic community in Miami. It's a complicated history, and uh, it, I mean, there are certain aspects of Haiti that I've, I've, I feel have not been dealt with properly or understood properly, and I, I work with those, you know, like to try to understand them myself, you understand, because I'm trying to understand the place and I'm trying to de decipher it. Like anyone who has had to start over in a new land, Duval Carrier bears both the deep trauma and the legacy of his parents' migration. As Danticat reminds us, Haiti may always be home, but we can create new homes around us, regardless of location, even as we carry this trauma with us and work to heal from it. My parents left home. They would rather have not left home. But they left home during a dictatorship. They left home because they were poor. They left home for opportunity. Others in my family left home because they were in danger. So there's this, this feeling that we just ended up where we were able to get in, you know? And I think that's something that so many people, especially these days, right, 
can identify with. Like, you know, I always return when people talk about home. I, I can't help but always think about the Warson Shear poem, No One Leaves Home un Unless Home is the Mouth of a Shark. So home is just kind of, I, I just felt like that's where we ended up. And uh, it's a cliche, you know, home is like I see like I is what, you know, we Haitians say a lot, like I see like I, home is home. And we say it in a way that means Haiti will always be home. But when your home is sometimes, you know, for different reasons that you can't get there right now, or, you know, then home just becomes where your loved ones are, where you can be with them. Like Danticat, who infuses her work with reflections on Haiti and her new home in Miami, artists like Duval Carrier play with inspiration from the homeland. But others find inspiration closer to their own backyards, in the particular elements of Miami, in its architecture, the play of light through the trees, and the visual languages of its many immigrant populations. Miami is one thing in the popular American imagination, and often quite another in reality. It's like the reality on the ground of Miami in 1986. It's not the gleaming New York City tower view shot or even the sort of um, what would have been in a Michael Jackson music video. <laughs> so what I sort of first encountered is a place that um, pretty quickly established like, okay, America is not a kind of a paradise on its surface. It is sort of... Um, gleaming in different ways. This is Adler Guerrier, a Haitian-born artist who moved to Miami at the age of 10 and was immediately fascinated by the city and its potential. He saw Miami as a liminal space for economic and political migrants, a city that almost encouraged having roots in many places. But I arrive in a place where many layers of the familiar is well established. And it's established in a way where Haitians who are in Miami are mostly working to support family back in Haiti. That sort of relationship is strong. The first impression, in essence, made the sort of case of how Miami has always sort of belonged to the Caribbean, where the Caribbean's claim for this city as its own has long been established at least in a concentrated neighborhood in Little Haiti, that reality seems really true. And that sort of relationship of, of a bridge geography that seemed to have continuity was felt and was normal to the point that I know for a fact I wasn't thinking about it. I can actually just turn my attention to what it meant to be in America. Like Donette Francis, Garrier's experience in Miami expanded his notions of blackness. What I really discovered living in, living in Miami, of coming to Miami, is a Black American experience. Not just African American, but also Black Jamaican, Black Cuban, and Black Colombian, and sometimes also African. And how that particular experience mirrors kind of complexity when it comes to notions of democracy, American power, American policy, public policy toward other countries, the sort of um, how there's kind of a 
historical allyship that is based within blackness, within the black diaspora, that has both reluctantly settled here because of the way immigrant public policy had in essence pitted one immigrant group versus another, but in actuality, we're all in the same boat. All of that becomes for me what it means to live in America. Guerrier thinks of himself as a flaneur or a wanderer. His art practice, which ranges from photography to mixed media collages to sculpture, retains the flavor and the colors of the neighborhoods he wanders, especially Little Haiti. Miami is actually a very good place to be a flaneur. Even if you are, you have to drive every once in a while to get to places that are more complex. We live in a city that the forces that act upon Miami actually have kept it tightly bound and doesn't always reproduce new complexities as much as it reproduces old ones. <laughs> so Miami itself, as a large place, as an American city, seems to um, behave in a, in a kind of a predatory, dominant way toward the Miami that is an immigrant city. <laughs> but the temporality of the Flaneur is that of a pedestrian, for sure. It champions a kind of um, temporality that is much slower, where things like observation of backyard spaces, gardens, how people sit around or on the trees in the afternoon and share. Like any local with deep ties to the area, Guerrier has a favorite spot in the city. But this isn't a tourist attraction. He speaks lovingly of the older housing stock in Little Haiti, where smaller spaces are supplemented by front yards. In the late afternoons or on cooler evenings, these yards become outdoor living spaces with a unique Miami flavor. So in my mind now, I'm around the corner of North Miami Avenue and I don't know, I think it's about 46, 47th Street on the northwest side. There's this house and then there's a kind of a makeshift tent Many time I pass by over the years, there's a domino game that's happening in that house. So the extending of their semi-private space, which is immediately outside of their door, into a kind of um, communal space for a game to occur. All the kind of things that happen when a group of people, five to 12 people uh, congregate, happens there. For me, just seeing such a scene is counter to the sort of um, development-heavy or tourist-heavy narrative that Miami has sold to the larger world. Because of the tarp, because of the makeshift of the tables and chairs, it's not the sort of photogenic image that will end up being on the billboard or the Visitors Bureau will use as an image to bring people over. There's something of that scene that speaks to us who live here, but that doesn't really speak the same way to someone who doesn't. And if we go around in various blocks, in various sections of neighborhoods, we might see many hints of a reality that counters a kind of a dominant story where we just live and make money and it escape the shadow of what is dominant. 
Garrier's flanerie and his deep familiarity with Miami's visual language gave him an idea for a series on Miami colors. He works with a limited palette, all colors drawn directly from the landscape. So at one point, I, I was driving down this particular street and I observed five houses in a row with um, similar shades of pink. The pink becomes the language of this particular street, of this particular block. All the neighbors seem so green. That is the tone, that is the language, that is the color with which they are offering a kind of um, anchor of their presence on that particular street. For Guerrier, color is never just about color. It's a way of relating to each other, to the environment, and to one's own memories. This gentleman was telling me the story, the story of how the blue that he picked to paint his house recently, this was the same blue that was at his grandmother's house. It feels familiar. It's a replication of a language that, for one reason or another, many Miamians participate in. What are the colors of Miami? Besides our perennial pink houses, what is the palette we share? The greens of um, South Florida's evergreenness of plants and of leaves, the sort of brightness of uh, mangoes, the sort of browns of tree trunks looks great against the yellow of that house, against the seafoam green as it looks against the sky. So there's something also quite nice about the large framing of um, the ecology here against the artificiality of a palette and how it came to be. Guerrier sees his work as documentation of Miami's present, but also in many ways its potential futures. As the city changes, he wonders what will happen when new Miami realities bump up against local communities and practices. What is the future of our domino players under their tree and tarp, in front of their duplex in Little Haiti? What is the future of that? I mean, the truth is, such scenes will cease to be. It will cease to be for multiple reasons. It's not just gentrification. Hopefully... One of the reasons why it will cease to be is that said family would move to newer and better housing in a different neighborhood. What I'm concerned about is what is visible to the street. What I'm concerned about is, do I live in a place that appreciate this scene as for what it is? That part, I believe, is a lot more difficult. It's a lot more difficult to deliver an appreciation for what is in front of us Though it is flawed, though it is incomplete, though it is already um, been eaten by the machinery of capital, what is in front of us? So there are places in Little Haiti that retains a footprint of that long narrative. It is important to understand that place changes, people's focus changes, but why we have culture, why we have art is to solidify how we narrate the change. Miami is already feeling the impacts of gentrification and climate change, and these subjects are increasingly prominent in the conversations and works of local artists. 
Regardless of the changes that may come, Guerrier says Haitians arriving in Miami will always find a home in Little Haiti, even if its exact borders may shift. Little Haiti and Miami reinforce each other, bolstering the city's artistic and cultural capacity. Be sure to check out the Haitian artists highlighted in this episode, including Adler, Edouard, and our ongoing events at ICA, including the Art and Research Center's Arts of Haiti seminar. Please visit the ICA website for details. Join us next time to learn more about the symbolic and material legacies of the Haitian Revolution in the Caribbean and beyond. Tomorrow is the Problem is produced in partnership with Podfly Productions. This episode was written and produced by Thea Piltzecker and me, Donna Honarpiche, in collaboration with Wilkin Brutus. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our recording engineer is Carly Riem Neal. Our sound designer is Nina Pollock. Special thanks to Donette Francis, Edouard Duval Carrier, and Adler Guerrier for joining us on the show. The music for this episode includes Bukman Esperance, Tipa Tipa, Rudy Rudeboy's Tramble, Katie Lack and Bejin's Poemet Wen, Los Wizards' No One, the Creole Choir of Cuba's Edeme Chant, mixed by Jay Poole, and Buena Vista Social Club's Chan Chan. I'm Donna Honarpiche. Thanks for listening. <laughs>